You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Morning, everyone. Thanks for the applause. I've not done anything yet. So, uh, <laughs> give it another 30 minutes or so and see how you feel about that. Um, I'm John, as Mark said. I've uh, been part of City Church for around 11 years, uh, along with my life, wife, Lorena, sat up on the balcony. We've got a, a 13-year-old son who's currently making a racket somewhere in the youth uh, room. It's good to be with you this morning. I was speaking to Pete at the break, and he said, uh, you're probably the one who gets the most out of this. That's true. Um, but hopefully you'll get something out of it as well. It's been a great joy preparing this and uh, discovering what's in store this morning because it's been a bit of a discovery for me as well. As an occasional preacher, uh, I don't really have a series to hook into. Uh, Alan wouldn't let me do some of the uh, David and Goliath stuff that he was on about, so I've had to turn to the lectionary and allow 2,000 years of church tradition to decide for me. And of course, the problem when you're working with a lectionary is that, in the words of Forrest Gump, Uh, It's a bit like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And today, what are we going to get? It's two Thessalonians. And you say to me, what is a Thessalonian and why is there two of them? Well, I'll tell you why. (laughs) Should we end it there? So Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a large, wealthy, important city in Roman times. Today it's the second largest city in Greece. Am I um, okay on the mic over here? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to switch to the handheld, aren't I? Oh, yeah. Oh, in fact, I've broken the whole thing. There we go. Is that better? Right, we'll try not to break anything else. As we go through, so Thessalonica, an important city in Roman times, second largest city in Greece, I think that's where we got to. Uh, People who lived there were called Thessalonians, and there are more than two of them. Um, So what, in the the book of Acts, we have some early Christian leaders, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, spending a few weeks in Thessalonica, preaching away over there, uh, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, and establishing a church a church which by all accounts seemed to be a fairly successful church. Uh, However, like most newly established churches, and let's be fair, a lot of older and more well-established churches as well, the congregation at Thessalonica struggled with certain issues. And so, multiple church founder, celebrity saint, and prolific New Testament author, Paul, writes some letters to this fledging church to help provide them some encouragement, some guidance, and some correction. And it's from the second of those letters that we are going to read today, hence 2 Thessalonians. Mikey, you were looking for a prompt. This is it. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 to 13. We'll read it out. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness, and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. 
This was not because we did not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Whew, steady on, Paul. That's a, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. I thought the New Testament was supposed to be about love and grace and mercy and following the leading of the Holy Spirit and all that nice stuff, isn't it? I don't know if you ever, any of you have ever been to one of those escape rooms. Anyone been to one of those escape Yeah, Mark's been, Lydia's been, a few other people have been. So I did run a few years ago uh, with uh, my wife and my sister. I thought I'd be pretty good at it. Uh, I, I fancy myself as a bit of a kind of a logical, systematic thinker. Turns out I'm a complete liability. Uh, I'm just too slow thinking. If you want to get out of one of those things, you want my wife with you. So top tip there, if you want to escape, she was absolutely epic. If you haven't been to one, the basic idea is that you're trapped in this room, you and your team, and it's full of clues. And your job is to sort of sift through those clues and to try and escape from the room by solving the clues. And along the way, it sort of tells a bit of a a story. You're not supposed to get led astray by any of the red herrings that might be there. And working with scripture can be a little bit like that. You're surrounded by dozens and dozens of seemingly unrelated clues. And sometimes you solve one puzzle and it takes you on to the next puzzle along the way. Now in an escape room, you're trying to find a way out by solving the clues. Whereas with scripture, we find our way through it as it reveals its clues to us. And sometimes a clue has got multiple parts that are found in different places, and it's only as you start to pull these different parts together that the picture starts to become clear and make a little bit more sense. So thankfully, 2,000 years of church history and tradition has helped collate some of the related parts together for us. And so let's allow the lectionary to take us to Isaiah chapter 65, one of the other passages today and see if we can start to make sense of what's going on in this passage from Thessalonians. So Isaiah 65, if you want to follow in your Bibles, verses 17 to 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For the one who dies at a hundred years old will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall enjoy 
shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So hopefully after reading all of that, that's cleared everything up for you. We've gone from straight-talking Paul to the elegant poetry of the Old Testament's most prestigious prophet. To me, it's a bit like going from Jeremy Clarkson to Lord Byron. And I mean that purely in the sense of their writing style, not commending either their content or their lifestyles to you. Hopefully you get the picture. You think, what on earth could these two have in common? And Sorry, I mean Isaiah and Paul, not Clarkson and Byron. That's, that's an English literature seminar that's somewhat improbable, I guess. Um, so let's spend a bit of time digging into what Isaiah's talking about and see if we can figure it out. Isaiah's writing about 700 years before Jesus was born. And the context into which Isaiah's prophesying is one where the Jewish people, God's chosen people, the people of promise, and the nation they occupied faced great turbulence and uncertainty. And throughout Isaiah's very long career as a prophet, the independent sovereignty of the nation of Judah was under pressure. You see, the dominant Assyrian Empire had conquered much of the land around them, including their northern neighbor, Israel. And Judah had not succumbed yet, but at times they'd been reduced to this vassal state, paying tribute to this belligerent and ruthless regional power. And to anyone who was paying attention to what was going on, the short-term feature of future of the nation was looking pretty bleak. It seemed that the destruction of Jerusalem and Yahweh's people was inevitable. And Isaiah doesn't keep quiet about this in his writing. There's large chunks of Isaiah dedicated to describing how Yahweh's people have deserted him and how this will result in their destruction by foreign enemies and how they will be subjected to punishment and purification as a result of that process. However, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah is also able to see beyond the impending trials and tribulations of God's people and the nation of Judah towards what will follow. And in chapter 65, he paints for us a picture of a future age of prosperity brought about by God for the people of God. Isaiah writes about a new heavens and a new earth where a new Jerusalem will be established by God himself. A new Jerusalem where there will be no more tears. A new Jerusalem where death will no longer have a grip on mortal life. A new Jerusalem where Yahweh is present to answer the call of his people. A new Jerusalem where businesses will not fail, where children will grow to be adults and life will be long and prosperous. So think of the oldest person you know. I'll give you a moment. I'm hoping some of you know someone who's old. 
I was uh, very lucky to know my great-grandmother, uh, Granny Smith, or as we called her in our family, Granny Apple. Um, and I can remember talking to her about her earliest memories, which were of being in the Second Boer Anglo-Boer War and taking refuge down a diamond mine during the Siege of Kimberley in 1899. My earliest memories of her is that she was very old. And when I was a teenager, she was still very old. <clears throat> and she finally passed away at the age of 98. That's very old. But not according to Isaiah 65. She would not even be considered a youth in this new Jerusalem. Isaiah looks forward to the promise of a new time, and a new place where everything will be new and everything will be good. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we're all looking for a new start. We grasp at what the media, marketing execs, celebrity culture, social media tells us we need. We think that everyone else happier and more successful than we are so we want something new. We want an experience that will lift us from the drudgery and disappointment of our boring lives. And I wonder this morning, is that the driving force behind the decisions that you take? Fine dining experience, an ice hotel, a beach holiday, a spa break. That will be the experience you need to make you feel like your life matches up to everyone else's. How eager are you to find that perfect photo to pop onto your social media feed? Maybe you frame your desire for new as having goals. You're just working towards that car that you like, that house that you want. If you could just have those, then your life would be so much better. You would be so much happier. Or is it a qualification you've got your eye on? Then you'll be set for life. Everyone will know how hard you work how clever you are, how capable you are. Maybe you've got your eye on a particular job or promotion. Maybe then you'll get the respect you deserve. You'll have influence and that'll make you feel special. No, wait, I'm going to dedicate myself to the gym and exercise. I'm going to make sure I lose that excess weight, get a body that others admire. I'll get new clothes. I'll post the pics on Instagram. Then they'll be the ones who are jealous of me. Get lots of followers so everyone knows just how satisfying my life is. Maybe that'll help me find that new boyfriend or girlfriend that I'm looking for. Because if I just had somebody who understood me to share my life, then I would be happy. Maybe it's a new church you desire. Somewhere where the music and preaching are more to your taste. A place where your spiritual gifts will be recognized and be put to use. Then you'll finally be able to draw close to God. Something new. We all want something new. Something to satisfy, something to bring hope and meaning to our lives. So what new are you hoping for? It's going to be something. What is it for you? Do you know what it is?
let's take stock of where we've got to so far. So we have Paul telling some idle Christians in Thessalonica to get off their bums and do some work. We have Isaiah talking about a new start in a new and glorious Jerusalem. But what have these two got to do with each other? Just be patient, we're getting there. There's a few more clues to unearth along the way. Let's cast our eye down to verse 25 of this passage. I've just realized that's incredibly small in there. Apology, everyone. I was going to say where we can find our next clue, a clue that's not so much buried as laying completely out in an open, labeled clue, if you could see it. And that's probably a little unfair anyway, because... uh, I'm assuming that there are not many scholars of Isaiah in the room, that perhaps not many of you are completely familiar with all the chapters in the book. And so I'm going to help you out, and we'll bring up a very small version of chapter 11 of Isaiah alongside that. And let's see if you can spot anything about these passages. I'll give you a moment to read them through and get your binoculars out. Anyone spotted anything about these yet? Not you, Alan. (laughs) It's always uh, risky bringing Isaiah out when your uh, lead elder is uh, writing a thesis on it. Anyone notice uh, any similarities between those passages? Any common terms of phrase? There's four, actually, in there that are either very similar or identical in wording, set out in the same order in each passage. So I've got some uh, highlights along the next slide. So we've got the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Uh, The wolf shall live with the lamb. We've got the lion eating straw like the ox. We've got the serpent uh, eating dust instead of children. Uh, And we've got they shall not hurt or destroy it all on my holy mountain, says the Lord. So four things that are pretty much identical across these two. And uh, I'm glad there's only four because I was running out of colors to highlight the differences. So uh, four it is. Uh, So here we've got this literary device that clearly links these two chapters together, chapter 65 and chapter 11. Isaiah wants us to read chapter 65 to see the wonder of a new heavens and a new earth with its beautiful new Jerusalem And to link it back to chapter 11. He wants us to see that the outcome in chapter 65 is because of what he said in chapter 11. Chapter 65 is the summary of, the conclusion of what's said in chapter 11. So what's in chapter 11? And will this be the final piece of the puzzle that tells us why Paul has such a beef with the idle Thessalonians? So let's take a look at the first few verses. Of chapter 11, that is. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, 
and faithfulness, the belt around his loins. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a, a family gathering or been involved in a conversation, perhaps with some of the older people in your family, and been told of some person of significance in your ancestry. Anyone been through that? I, according to my uncle, uh, I'm a distant relative by marriage of Sir Alexander Fleming, the scientist who discovered penicillin. So I hope you're all suitably impressed. I also happen to be related to a Victorian fellow who was sent to jail for money forgery. So, and I should point out that was also by marriage. Um, <clears throat> but it seems that we're endlessly fascinated as human beings by family trees. And here Isaiah references probably the most famous family tree in the story of the Jewish people. If you notice in um, verse 1, the talk of a, a new shoot or branch springing forth from the roots under Jesse's stump. It's a reference to a family tree that Isaiah prophesies will appear to get completely destroyed as a consequence of God's people's deserting of their God and the punishment and purification by foreign enemies that that will bring. A family tree chopped right down to the stump. But it's going to spring back to life in the form of a significant descendant. And if you've listened carefully during our David and Goliath series, you may remember that Jesse was the father of David. Yep, that David, the David who was anointed king of Israel, the shepherd boy who defeats Goliath and becomes the template for the ideal king of God's people. A man after God's own heart who united the people of Israel and led God's chosen people into a glorious era of safety, security, and prosperity. Okay, Isaiah, so if this is going to be a new king in David's line, why be all cryptic and refer to David's father, right? Why not just refer to David's stump? That would make more sense. That would make things clearer. Is it some kind of, I don't know, artistic poetic license? Uh, Not at all. Yeah, this will be a descendant of David, but it's more than that. And you see, by not referring to David, Isaiah is telling us that this isn't going to be just another disappointing descendant of David, just another in a long line of mostly underwhelming and disappointing kings descended from David. This is going to be a new David entirely, a better David, a better king, one filled with God's spirit and displaying absolute loyalty to God, one who will rescue the downtrodden of the earth, a new anointed one, or, if you like, the Messiah. And in connecting these two passages, Isaiah is showing us that the coming of a new king, a new David, will preempt the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth, out of which will come a new Jerusalem, from which God's reign of peace and prosperity will commence. We're being shown that the Messiah will come and commence the process of making all things new. We're being shown that the Messiah and for the sake of time, we'll have to skip ahead with the clues. In other words, Jesus. We've been shown that Jesus will be the one to usher in a new age of God's new kingdom here on earth. Verse 9 of chapter 11 tells us, 
The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How can the waters cover the sea? They are the sea. That doesn't make any sense. Bible scholar Tom Wright writes about this saying, God intends to flood the universe with himself as though the universe, the entire cosmos, was designed as a receptacle for his love. We might even suggest that the world is beautiful not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but because it is pointing forwards. It is designed to be filled, flooded, drenched in God. You know, there's nothing wrong with new. There's nothing wrong with hoping for new. That's where God is taking us. God invented new. God initiated new. God makes new possible. And he sent his son as a punctuation point to mark the end of the old. When King Jesus died on that cross, it wasn't just a substitute for your sins. Yes, it was that, but he rose from the dead and he disrupted the entire order of creation, making the start of a new age. A new age marked and empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit for all who believe. An age in which the power of sin and death is being undone. When God made you, all of you, in his image, you received that same desire for a new that he has, a new that brings completeness. And the question becomes, which new are you placing your hope in? Because you're placing it in something, something you believe will satisfy and bring meaning to your life. When we place our hope in Jesus, we place our hope in a new that makes sense. A new that brings genuine joy and meaning to our lives. And that's because it aligns with the desire that God placed in us to align with the work that he started and continues to do. A new that makes sense of ourselves and a new that makes sense of the world around us. The Thessalonians understood this very well, perhaps a little bit too well. We're finally getting back to them now. They'd heard about the coming of King Jesus from Paul and his companions. They'd responded with vigorous faith, understanding what this meant. They were eagerly looking forward to the coming of a new heavens and a new earth and the permanent rule of God dwelling among his peoples. They believed it was imminent. If ever there was a group of Christians who heard the gospel message being taught, understood its implications, and acted on it, it's these guys. For the most part, they're to be commended. It wasn't what they believed that was the problem, it was what they'd chosen to do with that belief that was problematic. A number of years ago, I was at a, uh, a social event with a youth group I was part of, and uh, there was a fair bit of excited chatter going on, because, um, especially among the younger guys and girls in the group, because there was this chap called Kevin, not his real name, uh, had turned up. And Kevin was a guy in his 20s who had uh, decided to uh, live by faith. And so the kids were really impressed with this, and I got talking to Kevin. And uh, his story was that he felt God had called all Christians to live by faith, and so he would go from place to place, trusting that his Christian brothers and sisters would take him in and feed him. And uh, 
That week he was living with my friend Jeremy, also not his real name, uh, or more accurately at Jeremy's parents' house. And uh, his only belongings were a backpack and his toiletries and I presume a Bible. And at first I thought, well, maybe he's some kind of a missionary or an evangelist. But no, he had no particularly ministry, uh, no job, nor any plan of getting either. And as far as I was concerned, he was just a scrounger and a bum. And he ought to stop sponging off others and get a job. But there were many Christians around me who really admired what Kevin was doing. They were impressed by it, perhaps even inspired, might even go as far as emulating his example. And this is the kind of problem that Paul had identified in Thessalonica, but perhaps with a slightly different backstory. You see, the Thessalonians believed that Jesus' return, along with the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth, was imminent. They were eagerly anticipating it. There's nothing wrong with that. They're to be commended for that. It's an example we ought to follow. The problem was they'd stopped living proper Christian lives in the anticipation of Christ's return. They were just sitting around, slacking off, waiting for the second coming. Jesus is coming back. It's fine. I'll quit my job. I'll sit around. If I'm hungry, someone in the church will feed me. They were being just like Kevin. No wonder Paul is forthright with his opinions. These are not the disadvantaged poor that need the support of the church. These are perfectly capable who have chosen to take advantage of and to abuse their brothers and sisters in the church. The Thessalonians had understood that a new heavens and a new earth were coming, but instead of that provoking them to an active and positive engagement in the world around them, they'd chosen to become passive, inactive, and disengaged. Jesus has turned the order of the cosmos upside down, setting in motion God's ultimate plan to make things new, and we're quite happy to turn up to church passive, inactive, and disengaged. Jesus is making all things new, and we're content to relate to our families in a passive, inactive, and disengaged manner. Jesus has filled us with a new hope for a future unspoiled by sin, and we think it's okay to attend our place of work or place of learning, passive, inactive, and disengaged. Jesus has set us in right relationship with God, and we think it's okay to treat our prayer lives and our approach to Scripture passive, inactive, and disengaged. How can we see the advent of Christ, the work that God is doing, and yet still be so dumb. And I know I am guilty of all of the above. Paul isn't advocating for a church culture that blames the poor for their own poverty and gives us license to ignore their plight. You know, God helps those who help themselves and all that nonsense. Paul is encouraging us that there is a correct and proper response to the newness that God has started to bring about through Jesus' work on the cross. That response isn't to chase after every form of new that the world has on offer, nor is it to distance ourselves from every normal activity in our lives. When we properly respond to the newness that Jesus has brought and is bringing, we become more alive, more active, more engaged in our communities.
whether that be our marriages, our families, our place of work, our place of learning, or the church. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Why don't we stand together and we'll finish by saying a prayer for today together and then I'll hand over to Mark. Oh God, you can join me if you like. In Christ you give us hope for a new heaven and a new earth. Grant us wisdom to interpret the signs of our times, courage to stand in the time of trial, and faith to witness to your truth and love. Amen.